you and I have a forgetfulness problem. The reality is we are a forgetful people. We forget birthdays. Some of you have uh, borne the wrath of forgetting an anniversary. We forget doctor's appointments. We forget to pay bills. Well, that might be on purpose at times. We forget important details that are really too important for us to forget, but yet we forget them anyway. We forget where we put our car keys. We forget why we walked from one room to the next because we went to get something. I did that like three times yesterday. We forget promises that we've made to God and to others. And, you know, the the funny thing is we have a myriad of tools and apps to help us in this, don't we? You know, like my calendar, I try to populate everything in that calendar of where I'm supposed to be and at what time. And I set all these alerts on my reminders on my phone that things going off all the time. And sadly, I still forget some things. (laughs) And there's a lot of reasons we forget, right? We might be too busy. We're easily distracted. We are inattentive in much of our life. Or some of us find ourselves a little more advanced in years and forgetfulness just seems to grow with time, doesn't it? The glut of information that comes our way on a daily basis that we consume can crowd out important details that you and I should be holding on to and should be remembering. But perhaps the greatest thing that we might forget And it's one of the saddest things of all to forget is that in all of our forgetfulness, it is possible to forget God. To forget the gospel. To forget what he has done for us. Now in our text today, Paul writing to his protege, young Timothy, his spiritual son in the faith, is going to remind him of something that he must remember, that he cannot afford to forget. There is too much At stake, if he fails to remember this, it's vital for life. It's vital for ministry. And these reminders that we're going to look at today specifically are there because of our tendency to forget. Our tendency to forget in the daily grind of life. Our our, our tendency to forget these things when times get exceedingly Difficult and certainly our tendency to forget uh, when we are in the trenches of spiritual warfare, both in our personal life and in ministry. So let's turn our attention to God's word. We're going to be in verses 8 and we're going to read through verse 13 of Second Timothy chapter 2. Hear the words of the living God. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. As preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, 
for he cannot deny himself. These are the words of the Lord. Let's take a few moments to analyze this problem of forgetfulness, especially in the people of God. Look how he starts this section here. Remember Jesus Christ. Why on earth would he need to remind Timothy to remember Jesus Christ? Who's Timothy? Timothy is Paul's apostolic delegate. He's his ministry partner. He has preached the gospel alongside Paul for many years. He's there in Ephesus as the main dude. He's supposed to appoint elders. He's supposed to teach other faithful men and entrust to them the good deposit that he has received from Paul who received it from Christ. Why on earth would he need to remember the absolutely most important thing that anyone could remember if they are a preacher and minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It seems weird. It seems strange that he would have to tell him to remember Jesus But it's not that strange at all, is it? It really isn't that weird because you and I have found ourselves in the place of forgetting Jesus Christ in thought, in word, and in deed. Israel, God's people, have a long history and had a long history of forgetting God. They had a serious problem of forgetfulness. And God in His graciousness would would remind him of what he's done through his servants, Moses and and the prophets. God would command them to establish signs and memorials and feasts to help them remember God's faithfulness, God's goodness, all of the glorious things God had done on behalf of his people, to remind future generations of the things that God had done with their forebears, yet they still forgot. Look at the Passover. I mean, this, this amazing Feast that God establishes and commands his people to observe every single year. A reminder to them of God's faithfulness and how he delivered them out of bondage in Egypt. And all that he did with them during that time because they were to be his special people, his treasured possession that he called out of all of the nations on the earth. He set his love and favor on this this poor, miserable, enslaved people. And he rescued them gloriously. And he reminds them through that Passover meal, which they are to observe every single year, God's faithfulness, God's power, God's mighty works, God's deliverance. Yet they forget. The book of Deuteronomy. As you read Deuteronomy, you come to understand that in essence, this is Moses' farewell address to the people of God. He himself is not going to enter into the promised land. They're going in. And it's filled with with these final exhortations to the people of God. But some 30 odd times, uh, Moses reminds them there to not forget the Lord. Over and over and over again, this is what Moses is exhorting the people of God. Don't forget, remember the Lord your God. Why does he have to do that? Because they forget. They forget. Deuteronomy 8 Look at 11 through 14. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God. How? By not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. 
Then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Be careful that you don't forget. They're to give their fullest attention to not forgetting God. Why? Because their default position, especially when they're prospering, especially when times are good, when there's enough food and silver and gold and they have everything to their heart's content, the default position that theirs is as well as ours is to forget the Lord, our God. How many only remember the Lord when it's crisis time? When there's the bad doctor's diagnosis? When there's so many bills piling up and you don't have money to pay for them. When marriages start going south and kids start to rebel or you lose your job. Well, then then we call out to the Lord, right? Then we remember the Lord our God. Then we seek Him. But not when times are good. Not when everything's going okay. Not when there's plenty in the bank account. Not when relationships are good. Then we don't pray. Then we don't seek God and go hard after Him. He doesn't occupy our thoughts. He doesn't occupy our affections and attention. The people of God forget. Prior to the conquest of Canaan, Joshua, the servant of the Lord, is instructed by God to to tell each one of the tribes to take one of the stones from the river. If you recall in the story there, the priests go with the ark. The Lord parts the water so that the people of God can pass into the dry land to take possession of the land that God has promised them. And Joshua then instructs them, the Lord wants you to take a stone out of that river, one for each tribe. And wherever we camp tonight, you are going to erect a memorial. And that memorial is going to be left in place so that future generations could see that and remember what God did. The faithfulness of God, the power of God, the promises of God to bring them into the promised land, to take possession, how God was going to rout all of their enemies before them because the Lord God was with them. And future generations could see that intact, in place, and go, God, powerful, wow, look what he did for us. Powerful reminder. Joshua, towards the end of his life, once again reminds them to remember all that God had done for them. He exhorts them to faithfulness in that famous charge there at the end where he says, "Who choose to say whom you'll serve. Because for me and my house, we will serve the Lord God. He calls them to faithfulness. He reminds them of how God delivered them and how God brought them into the land. A land rich with resources, a land where they could have everything Beyond their wildest dreams. The land that God had promised them. But sadly after Joshua died. And all the elders that were with Joshua. And were there at the time of entering into the promised land. They died. And once again we find the people of God suffering from memory loss. Collective amnesia. Judges chapter 2. 7, 8 and 10. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. May it be so, Lord. That would be good for us in health, right? 
And all that generation also were gathered to their father. So everyone that was with Joshua, everyone who experienced the miracle, everyone who walked across that dry ground, they died. They passed on. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. How tragic is that? I don't know if that memorial was still up. Maybe it got knocked down. Maybe they forgot to talk about it. They forgot to remind themselves of the faithfulness of God, the power of God, and the work of God. We find there in that period of the judges, this cycle of Israel's apostasy. <clears throat> it's, it's their ongoing. It's a story of their ongoing forgetfulness of the Lord. One of the most powerful judges, Gideon. I mean, God does an amazing work to deliver them from the Midianites. But after Gideon dies, Judges 8.24, and the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. They forgot. They forgot. Read Psalm 106. It is a tragic accounting of the dreadful forgetfulness of God's people. Three times in that psalm, it states that. Verse 7 of Psalm 106, they did not remember the abundance of God's steadfast love. Verse 13, but they soon forgot His works. Verse 21, they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. They forgot, they forgot, they forgot. But we can't be too harsh on them, can we? Because we forget. We have our own problem with forgetfulness. Through our forgetfulness, we confirm our dismal continuity with God's people of old. Through our forgetfulness of the gospel, through our forgetfulness of God's word, through our forgetfulness of God's faithfulness. Um, things that we should be reminded of. Things that we should easily remember that should be as vivid today as they were for us back when we first encountered them. One of the most cited commands in scripture is that. Remember the Lord. But it's always accompanied by some commentary about exactly how Israel did not remember the Lord and how they forgot. And all that emphasis is necessary because God's kids tend to forget. We just tend to forget. It saddens my heart. I could think back many times in my life of my own personal forgetfulness of God and His faithfulness and His goodness and what He has done for me. So Timothy must never forget. Remember Jesus Christ. He must never forget. Not in the hardships of ministry. Not in the thick of the trench warfare he finds himself in. Not in the midst of suffering. Not in his encounters with the false teachers. But he also must not forget when everything is going good. When ministry life is actually pleasant. When the sheep aren't biting or fighting. When the elders are on common ground and everyone's on the same page. When the offering is up. Timothy must not forget Jesus Christ and neither must we. Okay, We need to make sure that our theological memory of what, who God is and what he's done for us stays alert and intact. We can't afford to suffer memory loss. Now at the opening of this letter, Paul recounts to Timothy all of the things that he is remembering. That he is reminded of. You recall we walked through that in chapter 1. He's reminded of 
both his and Timothy's, the faith of his forebears, his forefathers. He's reminded of the deep uh, uh, affectionate relationship and friendship that he has with Timothy. He's reminded of Timothy's sincere faith. He's reminded of that rich spiritual heritage that Timothy has. He's reminded of the spiritual gifts, the ministry gifts that were given to Timothy by the laying on of his hands. The call of God on Timothy's life. He's reminded of all of these things. He's remembering. And Timothy has to remember. He's reminded of them. Timothy needs to be reminded of them. Remember, remember, remember. It is important that we remember. We remember Christ. Now, Paul had already exhorted Timothy several times in this way. He exhorted Timothy to not be ashamed of the testimony of Christ Jesus. He reminded him of the glory of the gospel that was fuel and motivation to suffer for Christ. To suffer for the gospel by the power of God. He was also to follow the pattern of the sound words. That gospel that Paul received from Christ. And he's to to follow that pattern in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. We looked at last week the exhortation that Timothy is to be strengthened by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's all about Christ Jesus. He gave him three images to remember. That of the soldier, that of the athlete, that of the farmer. Images that that speak to the the realities of what a minister of of the gospel is to possess. The dedication, the, 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 the diligence, the discipline to be a minister of Christ Jesus. All of these things are required. They are essential characteristics, but it's all in Christ Jesus. It's all about Christ Jesus. Everything centers around the person and work of Christ Jesus. And every resource that Timothy is going to need to guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to him. Every resource he needs to endure hardship. To take part in his share in suffering for the gospel. Is only found in Christ Jesus. For you and me. Everything about the Christian life. Everything about ministry. Everything about service to God and his people. Is based on the person and work. Of Christ Jesus. Think about the the why these letters, these pastoral letters here are replete with warnings against deviating from the gospel. Deviating from the word of truth. The the charges that, that Paul gives Timothy to deal with those teaching a different doctrine. Because any distortion of the person or work of Christ Jesus, any distortion or aberration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that no longer ceases to be, no longer is the true gospel. It ceases to be the gospel. And if it's not the true gospel, then there's no power of salvation. That gospel cannot save if it's not the true gospel. The false teachers... They were already there at Ephesus. They were already inside. The wolves were having their way. And Timothy had to deal with those who were teaching a different gospel. False teachers had infiltrated all of the churches of Jesus Christ. All of the churches that these letters are written to, everyone contains a warning against the false. Because the false cannot save. And those distortions all had to do 
regarding the person or work of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that next week. Some who are, all, who are distorting the gospel and saying that the resurrection had already taken place. And as a result of that, they were upsetting the faith of many of the saints. And they were shipwrecking their faith. That's why Paul tells them again, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. Now, it's not his gospel, okay, because he came up with it. He's not saying it's my gospel because I invented Jesus and I invented this whole thing of salvation. We know that's not the case here, right? It's his in the sense that it was revealed to him personally by Jesus Christ. We saw that in Galatians chapter 1. It's his because he was personally commissioned and appointed by Jesus Christ to go and proclaim Christ's gospel to the ends of the earth. That's why it's his gospel. Now, it's fashionable today for people to customize and personalize Jesus. To customize and personalize the teaching of Jesus according to one's own personal preferences. You may have people who profess to be followers of Jesus. Certainly you see this on different posts and social medias. People make common commentaries of things like this. I think Jesus is fill in the blank. Or I like to think that Jesus would have done this in this scenario. Or I like to think of Jesus as this, fill in the blank. And if whatever they follow those phrases with does not accord with the gospel accord with the teaching of Scripture and sound doctrine, it is false, it is heresy. The Jesus of one's own imagination cannot save. It is a false God. I don't care if they use Christian lingo. I don't care if they say, use phrases that sound like it's Christ. If it contradicts God's Word, the revealed truth in Scripture about the Gospel, about the person of Jesus and His work, it is false. And it's all around us. Every day I see it. Every day I stare at my timeline and I'm shaking my head going like these people should know better. People I went to church with. People who sat next to me. People who I know have heard the word of truth. Still acting the fools. Teaching false things about Jesus. Having their own invention of Jesus. We see that with the, right, the cultural issues of our day. Whatever the hot issues of our day. Everyone's got their hot take of how Jesus would respond. Except they're not going to God's word to say what Jesus would say. They're, in, they're inserting their own bias into it. Their own feelings about a certain thing. In the efforts to be liked or to be nice and not canceled or you know, uh, to be affirmed by the world. Well, Jesus would never do that. No, I don't know. Have you read the Gospels? <laughs> There's quite a few things Jesus did there that should give you pause before you make such stupid comments. We need to know the Gospels. That's why we need to know God's Word. That's why we need to remember Jesus Christ. Only the true Jesus, as He's presented in His Gospel, as is revealed in Scripture, only that Jesus can save. And only in that Jesus can salvation be found, none other. Now, Paul specifically references here two facts about Jesus. Just two things. References that he is risen from the dead and that he is the offspring of David. Why just those two things? Well, we already saw this earlier, right? 
when he makes these, these statements about the gospel and about Christ, his goal there isn't to give a full, robust teaching uh, on the person and work of Jesus Christ. But it's relevant in context to the passage, and it's relevant for what Timothy needs to hear in this particular case, and it's relevant and applicable for us today. The first thing he reminds them there is that Jesus rose from the dead. He's risen from the dead. Now, that's a no-brainer, isn't it? Right? Everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is one of the central themes and teachings and doctrine of the gospel to deny the resurrection, the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a big deal. Right? And there's people who still to this day call themselves Christian, but they don't believe in a physical resurrection from the dead. They think Jesus just, it's just his soul that rose from the dead. It was, he's a ghost. It's like a ghost, an apparition. You know? that, that's how he appeared to his disciples after, after his resurrection. Nope. That's not what the gospel teaches. It was a physical, bodily resurrection. We know this from 1 Corinthians 15. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, wrote that if Christ had not been raised, that their preaching was in vain. Christ hadn't been raised, then their faith is in vain. Their faith is futile without the resurrection. It is, an, it is an abysmal scenario, a pitiful scenario, if Jesus did not indeed rise from the grave and rise from the dead. But praise God, He did. Praise God, He did. Christ is risen from the dead. He's risen. It's, it's the ongoing reality to this day. He didn't rise from the dead and later, you know, lay back down again. He rose from the dead to this day. Remains risen from the dead. All right? And that is what Timothy is to remember. And that resurrection reality is what encourages the apostle as he's rotting in a Roman dungeon awaiting his execution. He's focused on the resurrection. He's remembering that Jesus rose from the dead. And because Christ rose from the dead, Paul is confident in his own future resurrection. Because Christ promised that. Read 1 Corinthians. I want to encourage you to go read that that glorious chapter one more time. It speaks to the hope that we have. This body, this corruptible body, it will decay. It will go to the ground. It will go to the dust. What the promise is that we will be raised incorruptible. We will have a body like unto our Lord's. We will experience a physical resurrection like Christ, who is the first fruits of the resurrection. Paul is remembering that, knowing at any moment his head's going to be separated from his body. He will face the executioner's sword. But so what? Christ rose from the dead. Therefore, I will as well. The resurrection is proof of Christ's divinity. It's proof that he's the son of God. It validates the gospel message and demonstrates the gospel power. The gospel can raise the spiritually dead to life. And if you are in Christ, you have experienced the power of the resurrection. You have been raised spiritually from the dead as well. Every day is Easter for us. Every day. We're in a perpetual Easter celebration. All right, people may celebrate it one time a year, not us. Every day is Easter. Every day we celebrate. Every day we declare He is risen. He is risen. Amen? 
Second thing we need to remember about Christ is that he's the promised Messiah. Not only is he risen from the dead, he's the offspring of David. Whereas that aspect of his resurrection speaks to the divinity of Christ, this one is about Christ's humanity in his incarnation. He's both divine and he's human as to his person. He is the promised descendant offspring from David. The one promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 who would sit on his throne. After him would come a son and his his reign, his kingdom would be everlasting. We're reminded of this in Luke chapter 1 as the angel of the Lord appears to Mary. The angel says in verse 32 and 33, Gabriel, he will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. No end. This was the truth that Paul continually preached in his gospel. We find in Antioch, in Pisidia, uh, in Acts, Acts 13. um, He's preaching this very same thing there. 22 and 23. And when he had removed him, meaning Saul... He raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. It's all throughout the Old Testament. It's all the things that the the prophets prophesied of the coming Messiah would be of the offspring of David, a descendant of David, and his kingdom would be established forever. These signature motifs of Christ's Messiahship, that he was descended from David and his resurrection, make up the essential gospel message. Can't have a robust gospel without teaching these things. Look at how Paul writes about that in Romans chapter 1. In his opening greeting to the Roman Christians, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, look, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David. According to the... That's a big deal. No incarnation. He's not the Messiah. He's not the offspring of David, the physical descendant of David. Okay? Uh, According to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by what? His... Resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. There, there's both there. The humanity of Christ and his incarnation and his divinity attested to by his being powerfully raised to dead by the Spirit, from the dead by the Spirit of God. Jesus fulfilled the Davidic covenant. He's the culmination of God's redemptive plan of salvation. He's the king. He's the king to whom every knee must bow. Whose kingdom has no end. And so Timothy has to remember that. The divinity of Christ. The humanity of Christ. The suffering that Jesus endured. On his journey to the cross. He must remember his his brutal and, and bloody death. And he must remember his glorious resurrection from the dead. And that continual remembering. Just like Paul is doing right here in this letter. Where he's at. Imprisoned. That continual remembering will enable Timothy to stand and suffer with Paul for the gospel. Christ's experience, as we've already seen, 
And Paul's letters to Timothy here is the model for all of us. Suffering and death as the pathway to glory and life and immortality. That's the formula. That was, that was Christ's pattern. That's what Paul is experiencing. That's what he's teaching. That's what Timothy's going to experience if he hasn't already. And that is the pathway for every single believer. Suffering and death is entrance to glory. Praise God. Jesus, born in humility, born in a manger, a lowly existence, born as David's seed, suffered as a criminal, though innocent, is now forever exalted and reigning from glory on David's throne. When we're tempted to avoid suffering for the gospel, when we're tempted to avoid being humiliated for the sake of Christ and his gospel, when we're tempted to avoid any pain we might experience as a result of our faith in Jesus Christ, we need to remember Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of everything that scripture pointed to concerning God's promises of salvation. He's risen from the dead. He lives. Keep on remembering this. Thirdly, here's another thing he needs to remember. He needs to remember the gospel's power. Paul says that's the reason he's suffering. It's on account of the gospel. It's why he's bound in chains in that very moment. It's why he's being treated as criminal scum. It's why he's suffering every indignity, every humiliation because of Christ and his gospel. He preaches the gospel and he suffers for it. He preaches the gospel and he suffers for it. And he wasn't the only one. The other apostles who were bold and courageous like Paul suffered the same fate. But his experience of suffering testifies to the reality of the gospel's power to enable him to stand and suffer for Christ. He was where he was for the gospel. And he's going to endure what he's facing because of the gospel. I love that in Paul, unlike everyone in our day today, there's no victim mentality here. He's not sitting there like some oppressed class, you know, woe is me, having some pity party because of where he finds himself. How many of us would be like, God, I've been faithful to you. You told me to preach the gospel. Why am I here? (laughs) We've missed it if that's the way we think. That's not Paul. He's right where he's supposed to be, and he knows that. It's like, if this is where God wants me, it's where he is. In his first imprisonment, I love what he writes in Philippians. It's like, this has served, look what the opportunity God gave him when he's under house arrest. He got to preach to the centurions, the Roman guards. He got to preach to all the household of Caesar, the gospel, while he was imprisoned under house arrest. That's why he can say here, but the word of God is not bound. He is confident in the power of the gospel, regardless of where he finds himself in. He might be locked up, but he knows the word of God isn't locked up. The word of God can no more be locked up than God could be locked up. He knows the power of God unto salvation is contained in the word of God and the gospel. The word of God is unchained. Not even the most powerful empire on the face of the earth can stop the forward movement and advance of the gospel. Doesn't matter how wicked the ruler is, how wicked the empire is, how powerful the army might be, no one can stop the word of God. The kingdom of God advances. 
and grows and flourishes. I know, we know the stories. We all get jazzed hearing the stories. I love hearing the stories after the fall uh, of, of communist Russia. All these missionaries started flooding over there thinking they were going to be the first to present the gospel to Russia. Well, what they discovered was the gospel was already flourishing in Russia, as it does in any communist nation. Millions of Bibles smuggled in. Bibles everywhere. And they were like freaking out. Well, the word of God's not found. The gospel cannot be contained at all. Even the most oppressive regimes, the most antagonistic to the gospel, have been unable to restrain the progress of the gospel and the growth of Christ's church. Jesus said he's building his church. So what force on earth can stop that? None. None. Even in the darkest of places, the light of the gospel shines through. People are being spiritually raised from the dead. Right now, in places that you go, oh, they can't. The gospel can't go there. Well, it's already there. It's already there. Praise God for that. And praise God for those God calls to go take the gospel to those places. Christ is establishing his church. His kingdom advances. That's what, that was Paul's confidence there. doesn't matter if I'm bound up in chains. God's word is not bound. So this is why he could confidently assert then. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This unstoppable force that is the word of God, the gospel of the risen Christ, means that it will mightily prevail in bringing salvation to God's elect. Who is going to stop that? Who is going to stop God's saving work? No one. No one. He knew that. He knew that. I've heard people say, well, you know, Christianity's in jeopardy. I don't know if Christianity's going to last another generation. What? What? Well, if it depended on us, yeah, 100%. <laughs> it was up to you and me? Yeah. Yeah, that's, a, that's closed up. Board up the churches. The word of God's not bound. Nothing can stop the gospel's power to save. Nothing can thwart God's plan of salvation. So Timothy must continue to share in, in this work of preaching and teaching and proclaiming the gospel because God's word cannot be stopped. And even if Timothy's to suffer like his mentor, like his spiritual father, so what? The gospel is going to keep going forward. No one can stop it. That preaching of the gospel is the means by which the elect obtain salvation and the promised eternal glory. Timothy, keep preaching the gospel. Keep preaching the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And that was Paul's motive for enduring suffering. That was his motive to, to be able to face the suffering he was in that particular moment. He's thinking right now about the well-being of God's people. He's thinking about the church. He's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about the mission of Christ. He's thinking about the church. He's looking out for their interests. He counts his own personal adversity and suffering as trivial. If it means that God's people in this moment are being served by where he is. By his own suffering in that moment. So if Paul's suffering serves the well-being of the church. If it serves to embolden believers. If it serves to stir up courage in Timothy to share in suffering as a good soldier. 
to fight the good fight of faith, to guard the good deposit, to endure hardships. If other believers grow a spine because of following Paul's example and and his courageous stance for the gospel, Paul is willing to even die for the sake of Christ and his gospel. If it means that the church is edified, if it means that the saints are strengthened. Wow. All of that was more important than Paul's own safety and freedom. I struggle to think how I would respond in that moment. I would like to say I'd like to respond like Paul. But I know my own tendencies. Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. What a privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ. See, Paul wore this as a badge of honor and rightfully so. He's just following in the example of his Lord and Savior, right? He wasn't concerned about his safety and freedom. We sure are, right? What happens if they throw me in prison? So? What happens if they cancel me? What happens if I lose my job? What happens if my family member, family members, you know, ostracize me? And what of it? It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's a privilege to suffer for our Lord. Do you see it that way? Have you ever thought about your own personal suffering and whatever it is you're going through right now? And, and thinking about it in the way that Paul viewed and thought about his own suffering. About it serving the well-being of others. Have you ever prayed and asked the Lord to use your suffering to promote the well-being and, and the interests of your brothers and sisters in the Lord? We don't think of it that way. Because our first instinct is to avoid suffering. Our first instinct is to want to pray away the suffering. To see that, you know, removed from us as far as the east is from the west. That wasn't Paul's. He's like, man, here's, here's why I do this. Here's why I'm okay with the suffering. When Paul was writing about the hardships of apostolic ministry, he wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, listen to these words, light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The things he calls light momentary afflictions are the very things you and I would call the opposite of that. Light and permanent, possibly. It would feel like it. They're faced imprisonments and beatings. They were stoned. They went hungry. We know from Paul he experienced shipwrecks and various imprisonments. He calls them light momentary afflictions. For Paul, the suffering was worth it all. Now, he's not some sadomasochist, okay? It's not suffering just for the sake of suffering. It's suffering for the sake of Christ and his gospel. The suffering is worth it. And why is the suffering worth it? 
because of the glory that awaits him on the other side of this. Like This is for a moment. This suffering I'm going through is this, it's, it's just for this little blip and moment of my life. What awaits me is the eternal weight of glory. And that glory far outweighs the suffering. It doesn't even compare. It doesn't even compare. But for us, any little bit of suffering is some ginormous mountain, isn't it? We want it gone. For him, it's light and momentary. This far greater glory that's coming. I'm living for that. Remember, God's word is powerful. Remember that God's, God's, uh, remember the gospel's power to save. Remember that nothing can stop what God has decreed. Not even powerful and wicked rulers and governments. That's why, you know what? God can do whatever he wants with his nation. Now, I'm praying for a mighty move of God. I'm trusting God for a revival. I want to see an awakening. I want to see people on their faces repenting and turning to Christ and salvation. I want righteous leaders ruling. But the gospel is not dependent on that. In fact, we've seen the opposite. The tighter the stranglehold, you know, of oppression against believers and the gospel has caused the gospel to flourish even more. Because let's go back to our tendency to forget. In the fatness we've experienced and richness in our nation, that's exactly what we've done. We have forgotten the Lord. We forget. There's no other nation I'd want to live in on the face of this earth. I love this country. I love what God has done. I love how blessed we are. But sadly, those blessings have become a curse to a lot of folks. And they've forgotten the Lord. They've forgotten the Lord. We don't want that. We want to remember that the gospel is the power of God into salvation. That nothing can stop the forward movement of God's word and the gospel. Last thing. Paul wants him to remember is to remember this trustworthy saying. This is uh, one of the five trustworthy sayings that are in the pastoral um, writings here. But Paul quotes here what is but what many believe to be a fragment of an early Christian hymn or maybe an early Christian poem that was recited in the churches or by by the disciples. In verse eleven through thirteen, the saying is trustworthy. <clears throat> For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, these are pithy sayings. They are general um, maxims for, for, for Christian life, for every Christian life. They, but they're, they're phrased here as if statements, right? If this, then this is what the Lord is going to do, right? And, and they're, they're written as couplets. So we have this first couplet, this first pair in the first and second line. And these have to do with faithful believers, right? These, the, the allegiance to Christ. Those who are not denying Christ. Those who are, who, are, who are dying to themselves and living for Christ in the midst of persecution and suffering. If we died with him, then we will also live with him, right? Now that life he's talking about is not just a future life. It's, it's in the here and now. It's the promises even Jesus made. 
We're to die to ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow him. And in doing that, we experience the blessings of life, all the spiritual benefits uh, given to us by Christ, purchased for us by Christ. We experience those here and then, in the here and now, and then in the future glory that awaits us. Enduring for the sake of Christ and his gospel is the pathway of victory in the Christian life. Look what he says there. If we endure, we will what? We will reign with him. We will rule with Christ. Glory is assured. That's what Christian victory is. Christian victory and triumph is not a life of ease and comfort. Christian victory and triumph is not a life absent of problems and difficulties or struggles or hardships. That is not the victorious Christian life. Christ's experience, Paul's experience... The experience of the universal church of Jesus Christ, who many have walked through, is this. Suffering, then glory. Enduring, then reigning. That's the deal. That's the formula. So these two lines are reminders for us to stand our ground. To hold the line. To to stand firm. To endure Because we're going to experience the life Christ promised us now. And we're going to experience the life Christ promised us then. And we will reign with him. And we can be assured of that. We will reign with Christ. The next pair, the third and fourth line, serve as a warning and also as a promise. There's also good news in there. Even though it just sounds like bad news. If we deny him, he'll also deny us. Who have we heard say that before? Yeah, Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, this is echoing Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 10, 32 and 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Those are terrifying words. That's a terrifying reality that sadly many will experience on day of judgment. Now, this denial is not like Peter's denial, because, you know, immediately I think about, well, Peter denied Jesus. Yeah, he did. He did. But that wasn't a complete denial, was it? That was out of fear of man, and he repented, and what did Christ do? Christ received him. Christ forgave him. He was an apostle of the Lord, preaching the gospel. The Lord did mighty things for him, right? We find him in Acts chapter 2, who was the apostle that stood up and began to boldly and courageously proclaim not the coward, you know, who denied Jesus. Right? Under the Spirit's power, he was faithfully proclaiming the good news. So he's not, it's not about that. But it is talking about apostasy. A complete denial of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He'll also deny us. This concerns, as uh, Kent Hughes states in his commentary, the terror that will unfold in final judgment is a reciprocal, eternal disavowment. You denied me before man, I'll deny you before the Father. Same way you treated me, the same way you will be treated before the Father. You disavowed me before the world, I'll disavow you before the Father. Horrific and terrifying and sobering reality. But verse 13, there's a turn here. It's If we are faithless... <laughs> I would say when we are faithless, but if we are faithless, 
doesn't say then he will be faithless. He can't do that, can he? He remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Now, I've given a lot of thought to this phrase uh, because commentators see this one of two ways. And I was reading even some old commentaries and they're split on, on how this could be. But I think both can be true here. The truth is you and I, we've all been and will be in the future faithless in some way or another. Our faith will waver. Our, our faith is fickle. You know, there, there will be times you and I will be tempted um, to lapse into unfaithfulness. To deny Him. Maybe not verbally, but functionally. There's a tendency of functional atheism in all of us, right? We could say a lot of wonderful things with our lips, um, but thought words indeed say a, a lot of things. And there could be moments where we will, you know, if we've, we're faced with a situation of deny Christ or die, I know all of us want to say, no, we will stand, take my head off. And, you know, I, I, I pray that that's the case. But I'm not always sure of that. And you probably aren't either. We're going to be faithless at times. But what does it say of Christ? He remains faithful. Now certainly that cannot mean that if we turn away completely from Christ, apostatize, that he will then not turn away from us. No, he's already said what he's going to do. And he's not going to go back on that. God is faithful to the warnings that he gives us in Scripture. They're there as warnings, right? Uh, and so he's going to be faithful to carry out the consequences of what he's warned us of. God cannot deny himself. God cannot act contrary to himself, contrary to his nature. He's holy and just. He's not going to do something contrary to what he's already said he will do in that element of a complete disavowal. But here's where there's good news for us. That statement, he remains faithful, is a comfort we can all draw from. I know this would have been a comfort to Timothy. We don't know a whole lot about the realities of what Timothy experienced, but I'm sure he was tempted to waver in his faith. He's a man. He's human just like all of us. We're all tempted to waver in our faith in many different ways. And he would have drawn comfort from this. God is always faithful. Not a one of us can say that. No man can say, I'm always faithful. No, you're not. Liar. But God is not a man that he can lie, right? No man can say that, but God is always as he is. He's faithful. He cannot be anything but what he is. He is faithful. But God is God cannot not be. He is faithful. In all of Israel's forgetfulness, in that sordid history of Israel's complete spiritual memory loss and amnesia they suffered through their disobedience and rebellion and whoring after other gods, what do we know about God? In all of that, in all of their lack of remembering, God never forgot his covenant. Never forgot his covenant. 
He was faithful to his end of the bargain, to his end of the deal. Thank God that in Christ, our faithfulness does not invalidate his ongoing faithfulness to us in him. We're going to waver. We're going to struggle. We're going to waffle, especially when we're confronted with the realities that, oh, this may mean suffering and extreme difficulties. And I've been warning you, we need to prepare for that more and more in this country. But what we're going to face is nothing different than what Paul faced and what others throughout the history of the church have faced. We are in great company. We're in great company. But we might be tempted to waver in our faith. But our faithlessness does not invalidate God's faithfulness to us in Christ Jesus. So remember Christ. Remember his resurrection. Remember his power that enables us to suffer for the gospel. Hang on to the gospel. Keep on remembering it. Keep on remembering that the tomb is empty. Keep on remembering that the throne is occupied forever. That this lofty vision of the person and work of Christ as revealed in his gospel, it will keep you in the battle. It will embolden you in the day of trial and help you to endure suffering and hardship for the sake of Christ and his gospel. Don't let busyness, don't let apathy, don't let distractions, laziness, or inattentiveness cause you to forget Christ. Remember Jesus Christ.